Welcome back to the Maluli Asset Management Podcast. This is Tim Maluli talking, and this is episode number 280. Today, we're going to focus in on the conversation surrounding student loan debt. There's a lot of topics in this area and a lot to dive into. People are really interested in ways to minimize their student debt or help pay it off. We wanted to focus in on that in this episode. We've talked about student loan debt and the discussion surrounding it in previous episodes, so it's definitely worth revisiting. So here we go. Enjoy episode 280 of the Maluli Asset Management Podcast. Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. So another article that I picked out uh, from Forbes talks about how to help your children minimize future student loan debt. Tying back into the last article, if you have less student loan debt, they might have more money to put into the market. You know, there's a lot of articles like this out there, but I actually really like this one because they talked about concrete steps that you can, as a parent, that you can have conversations with with your student about things that they can do to kind of cut things down. Right. It started out outline the different ages as your child gets older and they approach college. It goes from, you know, when they're very young on the parents to start saving, maybe use a 529 plan to as they get into high school. You know, the tip that they had there was maybe see if they could take some AP classes or take the AP tests to get college credits that could transfer over so they don't have to have as many credits when they get to college. Uh, and it kind of works you through what the student could do to kind of offset some of these student loan costs. And I agree. I thought it was pretty good offering you know concrete things that they could do along the way to try and reduce the amount of loans that they needed to take on. I think it's important these kind of conversations to not just talk about you know money and saving money and putting money in a 529 and doing things like that, but to also talk like we've just mentioned in specific steps that parents can suggest to their kids that, hey, you know what, if you have good grades and you take this AP exam and you get into an uh, advanced placement course, you should do it yeah. because you're going to be chopping off credits that you're ultimately going to need for your degree when you graduate. We had a program where I went to high school, and, and again, this is in the 1970s, where seniors, if they qualified, could sit for they called them fast classes and it stood for something I forget. But basically they had teachers, professors from CW Post College, it was a college back then, <laughs> uh, come in and teach these classes. They were on a completely separate track. And when they finished their first year, they had, I think it was 24 or 27 credits under their belt already done. Yeah. For the first year. I know just by doubling up on some of my classes, I finished college in three years. And then I just plowed ahead and got my master's. So it's just 
you know what? Having these kind of conversations just makes so much good sense. Yeah, I think a lot of the conversations that get had with advisors and parents are, is about saving money and 529 plans and stuff like that. But there's a lot of other things that factor into the cost of college that aren't based on that. Another point that they brought up was looking for value schools, finding schools that you can afford or that offer good value, that offer the courses that you want to take. They have your major, you know, they have something that you want to study and they're not that expensive. You just said one of the magic words, afford, you know, going to a school that you can afford. And it's really hard to afford a lot of these schools. I would cringe when I would hear that Someone we know is sending their son or daughter off to a school on the other side of the country where they have to take a plane to get there and they're going to study education or nursing or business. We're in New Jersey. What kind of college in the local area doesn't have a business program or a nursing program? Right. You need to be realistic. I mean, kids... I know I went through it when I was looking at schools. I found schools that I just, we went and visited and I fell in love with them. And I was like, I need to go here. I want to go here. Eventually settled on York because, you know, my brother went there and it was great. And it also was an affordable school. Well, they also Uh, put together a heck of a deal for you as well. You had good grades and they they made a terrific offer. Right. It's kind of hard to refuse. Yeah. But I know that there are some people out there that their kids just get set on a school and they send them there, even if it's way too expensive for them and they have to take on loans. They're going to pay through the nose for four years of college. They're going to walk out with a, sorry, generic degree, and they're going into a field where they're never going to make top dollar and be able to pay off all of the money that was borrowed for their kid to to go to this flashy school. Sorry. Yeah, or, just, or just a field that it doesn't matter where you went to school. Right. As long as you have a degree, that's really all you need. That's right. And you know, the last point that they made was when your kid's in college, talk to them about potentially working uh, while they're in college. I had a job the first couple of years at school, you know, through the work-study program at school, but there are jobs around campuses that you could get to take on. I know as a student, I had a full course load, but honestly, I had a lot of free time. You can take advantage of that if you need to. Okay, so I'm going to just take a minute out to do my little commercial. Okay, so I finished in three years, as I mentioned before, and I I stacked my classes so that I would go from 8 o'clock in the morning until 12 or something like that. And then I would take, and then I would work at a part-time job at Manufacturers Hanover Bank. I would work every day, Monday to Friday, one to five. And then a couple of nights a week, I would go back and I would take classes from six till 8.30 or nine. Tim is over here cringing, <laughs> listening to the schedule. But I was off on Saturdays. And as I was saying my piece about how I worked and you know I had a lot of free time, thinking about it, if I was in college and I was a student and my parents were like, hey, get a job while you're while you're at school, I'd be like, yeah, pfft. Yeah. No thanks. Yeah. I'm good. Yeah. Sorry, but, I uh, I got to go. So, you know? yeah. yeah. So it might be more difficult than you think to convince your children to get jobs, but it could really be beneficial for them. My dad pitched me on the idea in 1979 that I should think about going to community college for two years and then go anywhere I want. And that sounded so appalling to me as a 17-year-old. I was angry. I was mad at my at my parents for even suggesting that. I understand it's going to take a little healthy attitude adjustment on everyone's part, and it's got to be presented in the right way. Yeah. 
Absolutely. It's not easy to do, but you know what? It, college is expensive. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to the high school students who are listening <laughs> to this podcast. College is super expensive. I mean, your parents may have bought their first condo or co-op for the cost of a year of college. Right. Think about that, okay? It's one year of college. So the full cost, cost for four years may cost more than the house that you're living in right now. Think about that. What was this this first one? You had like a, a graph that you were sharing with me before we started up here. Uh, looks better on the color printer than on the black and white printer. Sure. Well, we can we can link to this. So we'll uh, paint the so we'll paint can... the word picture. Yeah. Uh, here and we'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, report out recently from MIT uh, that showed the cumulative change in real weekly earnings of working age adults. So these are working age adults. So this is from age 18 through 64, and it covered a period from 1963 to 2017. In some cases, going back as far as 55 years. And they showed what happened to the change in real weekly earnings if you were someone who was a high school graduate, or if you had some college, or a bachelor's degree, or if you had a graduate degree, what, how, what impact did that have on your earnings over time? They also included, what if you were a high school dropout? Very interesting. Using 1963 as zero, you know, their launch point, they showed that there really was no drop-off for uh, your income in the 60s and actually into the early 70s, there wasn't much drop-off between a college graduate or someone with a graduate degree and a high school dropout. But things shifted very quickly after that. In fact, uh, from a peak in 1981 through the late 90s, in the late 90s, you were actually on a dollar-for-dollar basis earning less than a high school graduate uh, 25 years earlier. Uh, in the 1960s, and that hasn't really budged all that much now in the last 25 years, where if you're dropping out of high school, you're going to have a tough time making money, and your income hasn't increased at all, really, in the last 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. Now, by comparison, we were both looking at this. That was for men who fit those different profiles. Women, high school dropouts, uh, starting again, 1963, as your zero launch point, uh, they've actually had a somewhat steady ride up. Again, not making much as people who have some college or college degree, but they are moving up. And you alluded that to... I think that could just be fairer wages being given to women over this time period or more women entering the workforce. I mean, this goes back 50 years. A lot has happened over the last 50 years in terms of equal pay. I don't, I don't sure. think we're quite there yet, but uh, things have definitely gotten better over this time period. And maybe that speaks to uh, equality. Probably a lot behind this. It's interesting to note that if you have a graduate degree, uh, if you're a male with a graduate degree, uh, pretty much a straight shot up from 1963 into the 1970s, kind of pause there around the late 70s into the early 80s. And from there, moonshot up very nicely. The graph is actually sloped even higher for women who have graduate degrees. Their income doesn't really seem to be stopping. Right. Uh, I don't know what the uh, larger report that this was from uh, says or is about. 
But what this graph says to me, the people who tell you the solution to all this student loan stuff is to just like stop going to college, those people are wrong. Yeah. And that's not a good idea. And additionally, we hear all of these stories about people like Bill Gates, who dropped out of college and started making computers uh, and stuff in his in his garage. That's terrific. That doesn't mean that you should do that either. Right. Like and that's not to say that you 100% won't be successful doing that because obviously this is on average. Right. So on average, people with a college degree or a graduate degree pretty much goes in order by the level of your education. That's, that's you, you could basically just match those with earnings. I could name these lines without even looking at the legend on the chart. You know what they are based on how much school they went to. That has been the message, but people have begun to question that recently because things like student loans have really gotten out of hand. Totally agree with that. It's a problem. Maybe some of those dynamics are suggesting that not as many people should go to these different levels of school that they did. But I don't think the answer is just that like college is crap and you should you should not go because right. I, I think a lot of people are beginning to suggest that and it has political undertones it's that really, I don't care for. That's really going to hurt people as they get older in life. So the my, the the main message I saw in, in these charts stay in school, right? So on average, staying in school pays. Doesn't mean that it that it's a guarantee. So no. you still have to be smart about it. Go to school for something that you think can probably you know that can get you a, a decent paying job or give you skills to be employable when you leave. You can't just mail it in. But on average, uh, yeah, stay in school. And I want to start off by discussing an NJ.com article that, uh, that, that you were quoted in uh, pretty extensively. Is that, is that correct? You are correct, sir. All right. Uh, so, so fill us in. This, this, was, uh, this was on the FAFSA, correct? Yes. So, and we do get a lot of questions from clients asking about the FAFSA. And the FAFSA is kind of a moving target. Important to know if you have kids who have kind of gone through the college system already, things have changed. So you're so this this falls into the college planning bucket when we're when we're looking at a, a client situation, right. looking at their financial plan. So my advice to the folks who hang around the coffee pot or the water cooler at the office and say, when my kids went to college, this is how we did it. Don't say that anymore because things have changed. One of the big problems with doing the FAFSA each year in the past, if it were uh, you were filing it, you, and they usually had a, they would tell you in the calendar year, file as early as you can because these schools have a limited amount of financial aid. If you can file by January 31st, you should, or file as soon as you can in January. Meaning meaning the FAFSA form? File the FAFSA. And is, by extension of that, your federal income taxes as well, right? Correct. Because they want that information on the FAFSA. That's right. Let's just go back in time and say it's 2013 or 2014 or 2015. You would have to have your taxes complete or pretty much on their way to being completed in January when you go to file the FAFSA. So if you didn't have your taxes done, they eventually added an option that said, will file. And what would happen is your student's FAFSA form would be accepted, but the college would normally send out some kind of financial package award letter in late April or May 1st. You would get it. And uh, if you hadn't filed your taxes or you had to get an extension, you usually got a letter saying, 
hurry up and get your taxes done so you can update your FAFSA information. It was a real drag. It's tough because, you know, while the college or soon-to-be college student, I'm sure, wants to make their decision and things like awards packages are going to factor into that big time, you also don't want to... So you want to get that in, is yeah. what I'm saying. You also don't want to rush something like your federal income taxes because... Absolutely not. You, you may, and many likely aren't prepared to file taxes, uh, be prepared to file your taxes in, in January. That's very early. Years ago, when this business was getting off the ground and you were a student in school, uh, I was always getting an extension right. to file. So that kind of messed with the timing of the award packages. People also, get, People get flustered by this. It's a lot. So it seems like a, an imperfect trade-off. Like, okay, so I'm either going to wait to hear about this college stuff, which is important to me and my child, or uh, I'm going to rush my federal income taxes re tax returns, which is going to make me stressed Yeah. Uh, anyway, because we may not even have all the information we need, like 1099s and things like that at, at the time of year you need to do it. So so what do you do? Because it seems like it's uh, before a rock in a hard place. Before huh? we get to that, I will tell you that I could almost identify perfectly which clients had students in school or about to go to school because they usually called the first few days of January. When am I getting my 1099? Yeah, because I have to file the FAFSA. So Mid-March, my friend. <laughs> yeah, they didn't like that. Oh. So uh, FAFSA has changed their terms, and now you can use your previous year's tax return information. So that's really good. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're filing now, we're recording this in March of 2019. Most people are now filing the 2018 taxes. You can use your 2017 return. Right. And then and then eventually they'll ask you for the uh, the twenty eighteen return? No, is that, everything is, that is how this works. Everything is based off the previous year. There's a year lag. Right. So your financial aid package will be based for the twenty nineteen and twenty school year is based on your twenty seventeen hmm. return. Well it's It'll always be a year lag. Interesting to uh, account for when you're when you're thinking about things you're doing that have tax implications in these years, that could either be advantageous or not, you know, depending on <clears throat> some people have, you know, one-off events that may uh, dramatically impact the sure. kind of aid that they're getting. If they're showing a they, lot more income for one calendar year, if they took a big distribution from a retirement account or had, you know, something abnormal come across the, uh, you know, the cash flow over the they, course of the year. They lost their job or they started a new business and there's no income, a lot less to show. That'll also skew the numbers as well. Yeah. These, uh, these decisions have ripple effects, so it's it's important to consider these uh, not not top of mind sometimes when you're making these decisions. But you know, think about this: this tax year is going to imp impact this year of the FAFSA, and you can kind of map out and maybe uh, consider those ramifications when when you're thinking about. I mean, this is why financial planning is quote unquote comprehensive because these these areas all have overlap, uh, whether whether it seems like it on the surface or not. Yeah, there's like you said, there's there's a ripple effect all through. Another Market Watch article in the last week was talking about the obscure debt that is holding back thousands of students. It's again clickbait. It's like, well, what's happening to these thousands of students? I gotta know. So yeah. I'm gonna click on this. But what the article actually talked about are schools doing just what you described, where they're withholding transcripts of former students because of things like parking tickets 
library finds. The little nugget in here that I, I thought was the most interesting was they talked about this return to Title Four thing. This is actually really big. This is, I mean, you can th literally throw away the library overdue charges and the parking tickets. Get to this because this was, I mean, this was really eye-opening. So I think that this this is the bigger part of this obscure debt. If I had to guess, they didn't break it down. But what this is alluding to, this return to Title Four. if you drop out of a school uh, mid-semester, so and that's technically if you have not completed 60% was, was the number they were throwing around here of a semester. In many cases, any federal aid that you were given is owed back to the government. And what the school will do often is they will give the government back the money because those those were the two parties transacting in the first place. You right. don't get a check for your federal aid and then give it to the school. So these two settle that on their own terms. The school gives the money back to the government, but then they add to your tab, student who did not finish semester, this gap the or whatever money, money they yeah. had to give back. In many cases, it's in the article, they said even Pell Grants. Right, which is advertised in many places as free money. Right. It's a grant and it's it's income-based, right. if I'm not mistaken. So this is money that people qualify for on a needs basis. Correct. And it's, it, it is presented as free money because it's you know stated that it's a grant, which right. that's how most people take the word grant, yeah. uh, at least in this context. I think that a lot more people are probably struggling because of stuff like this. And you yeah. think of, I mean, this may not be the case for everybody. Maybe I'm generalizing here, but if somebody dropped out mid-semester, they are now coming back to get their transcript because they do want to finish school in some capacity. But in a lot of times, there's some kind of like hardship going on. Or they're applying for a job. Right. For whatever reason, the student wasn't able to finish the semester. That's that's a pretty big decision to just stop mid-semester. I mean, right. people transfer or take breaks in between years of school or semesters. But to stop mid-semester means there is something serious going on and you find out that you you owe this money back to the school. I didn't know that this was a thing. Uh, and so I think that the point that I would like to drive home is I think like many aspects of this borrowing for college um, situation that, that is so talked about these days, things like this really need to be discussed. Like what are the ramifications if I drop out mid-semester or I don't follow, like nobody reads the fine print. And, yeah. and I think that that... Blame falls on everybody, obviously, Everyone you know, involved. the person accepting it, the person doling it out. I had no idea that this was a thing. And I, we have student loans for school. So like this, this could have been me. It's right. not as if I'm like smarter than anybody else. These people are not dumb for, you know, being caught up in this. I don't think many people know that this is uh, something to worry about. So I know that when you go through the process for FAFSA and some of these other things, you have to click unending number of screens to get through it and after a while it's like do you accept these terms click yes sure and it's you like just click, it's click, like the click, iphone click. updates yeah, yeah you're just, sitting down to read that yeah, yeah i agree Come i on. agree i'm giving my all of my just turn know, my phone back on i'm missing notifications exactly right <laughs> so that really is how this goes i mean it is the equivalent of for some people ripping open presents ripping up the wrapping paper on their birthday or Christmas because it's like, let's just get through this so I can get to what I really want, which is... Literally anything else? Going to school. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> going to school. Right. So yeah, it's a, it's a problem. I think it would be better handled if it were a one-on-one -on -one conversation with anybody and have a face-to-face -face conversation and say, hey, you're going to get this grant? 
a Pell Grant, which everybody thinks is free money, but there's an actual big string attached to this. It it is free money if you follow these rules. Here are the rules. Right. So if you want to make this decision that would break one of these rules, just know that this money is going to need to be repaid. Really something that you should think about. Um, It's too bad that that was buried in the, you know, really in the bottom of that article. Yeah, um, yeah, you really had to you had to dig for that one, but yeah, uh, that was, good, really good, really good find there by by the author. I, I I liked that point, and I learned something from it, despite the uh, clickbaity yeah, headlines. So yeah. not bad. 